0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin.
1: A
2: whole lot less lip service and a whole lot more action is required. I
3: don't feel safe.
2: It's the first
3: time I've... You know, I carry a knife now.
2: Revolving door criminal justice has failed the citizens of Nanaimo. It's failing the citizens of British Columbia.
3: We want uh, prolific offenders placed in jail. We want the victims to be looked at and looked after and feel safe to walk this very street in front of the courthouse.
0: Somebody should be able to say, okay, enough procrastination. Enough is enough. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith and those are some of the voices of BC citizens uh, rising up today at a series of anti-crime rallies that are scheduled across the province today. Many, many cities are having these rallies today, including a large rally in front of the BC legislature scheduled for this afternoon. I'll be speaking to some of the organizers of these rallies on the show today. And the theme, as I said, enough is enough. That is the name of these rallies rallies, people are just fed up with violent repeat offenders and a justice system that just continues to release them back into the public over and over again to commit more crime. So people are saying today, enough is enough, let's fix this. Now, there has been pressure on the federal government to bring in changes to the criminal code. Man, they are taking their sweet time with that. Let's check in now with Brad West, the mayor of Port Coquitlam, And he has been raising similar concerns. Mayor West, thank you for coming on this morning. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, you bet. Is that the way you feel about this today? Enough is enough?
3: A hundred percent. I I don't know what more it's going to take. I don't know how many more families have to suffer, how many more victims we have to create before the politicians get off their backside and do something about it. You know, Mike, I, I was just in Ottawa last week and had the opportunity to put this to a number of MPs. And the lip service about, yeah, we get it, we understand. Well, then what are you waiting for? When I was in Ottawa, that week, the House of Commons was having a big debate on a motion to recognize Canadian artists. Now, Canadian artists deserve recognition. Don't get me wrong. But I'm going to tell it like it is. How is that a higher priority for the attention of our MPs and our federal government than fixing the problems that they created through Bill C-75, which changed bail yeah. from a system of detaining people to right. releasing
0: people? Right. So this is Bill C-75 with changes to the criminal code, and it introduced what was known as a principle of restraint in the justice system where release at the earliest possible time is favored over detention. Now, <laughs> I mean, when we're talking v- repeat violent criminals, Like, how, what kind of crimes, what kind of, what kind of repeat violent offenders are being released under this system?
3: All, all sorts of ones, Mike. Yeah. People who uh, who assault people, People yeah. who assault people with a weapon, uh, people who engage in sexual violence—there yeah. uh, seems to be no limit to who it applies to. And, and I think people are, are just at the end of the road for this. Like, yeah. it, you are going to see an uprising of our residents, of our citizens, uh, to to force the politicians to act because we're seeing the consequences of this play out on our streets. When, yeah. when you don't feel safe taking your family to go get a starbucks when you don't feel safe taking the SkyTrain or the bus you know we have a major problem and this should be priority number one there are other things that are important absolutely yeah. but until they figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time in ottawa They should be focused on this issue. Get this fixed. It is an easy fix. You go and you undo a whole bunch of the things that they brought forward in 2019. How about establishing mandatory minimum sentencing for certain heinous, violent crimes? Mike, if most regular people know this, the justice system doesn't seem to get it. There are some people who are bad people who need to be locked up. That's a reality.
0: Speaking of Port Coquitlam, Mayor Brad West, uh, enough is enough. There's a, a series of anti-crime rallies scheduled for British Columbia. Many communities across the province today. will be telling you more about that on the show today. You mentioned that you were just in Ottawa. Who were you able to meet there? Did you get a chance to meet with the Justice Minister or any government uh, cabinet ministers or MPs? Unfortunately, we
3: didn't get a meeting with the Justice Minister. We didn't get a meeting with the Public Safety Minister. We did meet a number of members of Parliament from both British Columbia and other provinces. We raised this issue. The, even the MPs from other provinces are hearing about it. This is not a British Columbia problem. Uh, yeah. It's not unique to our province. You're seeing this across the country. Quite frankly, you're seeing it across North America. And so they're hearing about it. They, they know, and now it's just... It's again. What, what are we waiting for? Yeah. What, yeah. What, you know. Does, does do we have to have something so spectacularly heinous and tragic to happen in our country before yeah. the politicians lift a finger to do something about it? They should act now.
0: Well, the terrible thing is we've already seen some heinous and tragic outcomes uh, from this system. Uh, we've seen, we've seen uh, people killed by people who have been uh, granted bail. So let me ask you this. When you spoke to some of these MPs, obviously the opposition is putting a lot of pressure on the Trudeau government in Ottawa right now. Did you detect any, like, I got a feeling that there are a lot of liberal MPs, government MPs who are uncomfortable with this situation right now and maybe wondering why their own government is not getting going on this?
3: I definitely think that you're right, because I know they're hearing about it back home. They're hearing it from constituents. They're seeing the news. And they're also seeing in the polling that public safety is becoming one of the top three issues that Canadians are concerned about. I can't imagine they want to go into an election with this hanging over their head without having actually done anything to address the problem. You know, the other thing I I want to say about this, Mike, too, is When we look at the the justice system, I think we need to broaden that out and look at everyone who has responsibility for the justice system. In some some corners of society, I think people believe that judges are beyond reproach. Judges are humans. And sometimes judges make decisions, the courts make decisions, that I think are bad decisions. And we also need to have accountability there. Because here's another thing I'm going to say where I'm just saying it like it is from my perspective. When I was in Ottawa, that place is a bubble, man. If you're a Supreme Court judge and you work in one of those fancy buildings, chances are you're not feeling the outcomes of the decisions that you make. When someone gets back on the street and commits a horrible, violent crime again and and again, it's usually working in middle-class people who are, who are the victims. That's where we see this stuff happening, on the ivory towers. And so I think we need to get people who are in touch with reality making some of these decisions.
0: Yeah, I think I, I think you raise a lot of great points. I think there's a, there's a lot of blame to be shared here on this file. And let's bring it back home here for a minute, because we have a provincial government that says they are trying to do something about this as well. The Attorney General Nikki Sharma has said, look, we've told told our Crown prosecutors, go into court, stand up in front of these judges and keep these violent repeat offenders locked up. And it does not appear to be working. So let me play a clip here for you from the Attorney General and get your thoughts. So this is Nikki Sharma, let's listen. We issued a directive to the BC Crown Prosecution Service that resulted in the strictest bail policy in all of Canada. Um, and the preliminary results are showing that a majority of those cases detentions are are being denied. Okay, so this is the strictest bail policy in all of Canada. so if this is the strictest policy in the country, I'd hate to see the the loosest one or the worst one because it doesn't seem to be working here as, as she said herself in that clip we just played Brad we told the crown go in there and and keep these violent offenders locked up. Half the time, the judges are, are saying no to the request. And then on top of that, you've got violent repeat offenders where the Crown doesn't even ask for jail time. They don't ask to be, for these suspects to be detained. It doesn't seem to be working. Your thoughts?
3: Uh, it really shows you how far out of balance our entire justice system has become. And we need to restore balance. We need a justice system that has as much compassion for victims of crime as it does, apparently, for the perpetrators. I mean, I talk to police officers who forward charges to Crown, and Crown does nothing with them. I mean, imagine how frustrating that is for the men and women who are on the front lines of having to respond to many of these things. Uh, So, Mike, I don't have all the answers, but I do know this. We need to go top to bottom, it, it, it is clearly not working. Yeah. Chipping away at the edges is not working. And if we want to see a communi- communities like I think we all want to see, where, where people are safe, where people can be out and about, where people aren't having that nagging thought in their mind about what if something happens, where they're not having to walk, you know, look over their shoulder. Then we got to have top to bottom reform of our entire justice
0: system. Brad West, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, let's talk about how we tax real estate in Canada now, especially when it comes to home equity. Now, if you're a homeowner, you know for sure there's no capital gains tax when you sell your home. If that home has gone up in value, which basically every home has, gone way up, there's no capital gains tax as long as that home is your principal residence. Right? That's that's called the principal residence exemption. There's no capital gains tax on that home. Should we change that? Let's discuss now with my guest Paul Kershaw, UBC professor, founder 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 of Generation Squeeze. Speaking up for young people priced out of the housing market, Paul, thanks for coming on today. My
4: pleasure. It's always fun to join for a quarterly flogging about tax talking about taxing. housing. <laughs> okay,
0: okay, well, you're a good sport on it because I know that the homeowners <laughs> always <laughs> give you an earful here on this one. So you've got a new study out on this. You call this a tax shelter, a homeownership tax shelter. Why do you call it that?
4: Oh, really straightforward so when public policy shelters something like our principal residences from taxation uh in the way that it doesn't shelter any other asset that we own think about you know you make an investment on the stock market you have to pay capital gains on any investment return there but you don't when it comes to your principal residence that's creating a shelter and we do that in lots of ways we use tax policy all the time to subsidize different kinds of economic behavior And one thing that our new study is pointing out is that actually the most generous subsidy for housing anywhere in the country comes through this tax policy to shelter the wealth that people like me accumulate in my home as an owner going, you know, I've owned for 20 years. I've gained over a million dollars and that's completely sheltered from taxation, whereas my investments in RRSPs, et cetera, uh, you know, wouldn't be.
0: Right. And like, how much are we talking here? So when we take a look at the value of all these principal residences ac- across the country, if those, if those were exposed to a capital gains tax when they were sold, how much money are we talking
4: about here? No, oh, and the federal government knows this really clearly because every year they calculate how much money they are effectively spending by not collecting this particular tax that they otherwise would if the exemption didn't exist. And it adds up to $10 billion a year. And it has a corresponding influence on provincial coffers, which probably adds up to around half that amount uh, again So in the order of about $15 billion a year is what the homeownership tax shelter costs us. And people should know that when we first created the National Housing Strategy, and the federal government was actually putting new money to spend over a decade on housing affordability, the total amount of money over that decade at first was around $16 billion, if I recall. So in one year, this homeownership tax shelter does pretty much what the National Housing Strategy was trying to spend over a decade.
0: How long has that exemption been around in in place here, the principal residence exemption? So when you sell your home, if it's your principal residence, there's no capital gains tax. How long has that been in place in Canada?
4: It's, been, it's existed since the day we started capital gains taxation. So that's 50 years ago last year. So it's a half century old. And before yeah. we go too much farther, probably your listeners are starting to think, well, you know, Professor Kershaw at UBC thinks that we should now eliminate that principal residence exemption. But actually what the study uh, that we published said is like, I wish we hadn't created the exemption half a century ago. It's created some wealth inequalities and some ter- tremendous forces that contribute to unaffordability. But a half century in, we can't solve the problems it's created. Created simply by eliminating it. And so we're not necessarily recommending that that's the first step to trying to improve tax policy when it comes to housing loss. So I can put all your listeners at ease.
0: Okay. okay. Okay, for all the homeowners out there saying, oh, here comes the tax man, you're going to tax me on, on my capital gains when I sell my home. You're not saying that, but you are saying that... You tell me what you think is the answer here. It's like you believe there should yeah. be an, a- an annual, basically what, a home equity tax...
4: Uh, you know i would be adding some progressivity to our property taxation on an annual basis that we are already used to but before we get to that let's just yeah. back up like so why don't i think we should okay. why do i think we shouldn't eliminate the principal residence exemption as like the first step All right. and i think that's because if, to make it actually capture literally the 3 trillion in additional housing wealth that has been produced in principal residences over the last several decades you'd have to apply it retroactively But applying a tax policy change retroactively raises a whole bunch of questions about, is that fair? And I think reasonable people could say, no, that's not. In addition, even if you set aside that's not fair and you're like, we're going to do it anyhow. Administratively, figuring out how we would calculate what people's capital gains have been um, over the years is just like a heroic endeavor and really complicated and not worth the cost. And so theoretically getting rid of it might make sense. But, you know, it's not going to address the wealth windfalls that people like me have been accumulating over the last years. And so that's why, in theory, it might make sense, but it's not really effective. So instead, what what, um, Generation Squeeze is proposing and other colleagues from Coast to Coast who've been working with us on this theme have been proposing is to say, let's just focus on the 10 percent of households from Coast to Coast that live in the most affluent homes. It happens to be that if you're a homeowner who lives in a home above a million bucks, you're in the 10 percent of households that actually is in the most affluent homes. In Metro Vancouver, it might not always feel that way here. We're more like a quarter of the homes kind of fall into that category in British Columbia. Um, But what we're proposing is that for those the portion of a home that is valued over a million dollars, could we add a minor surtax starting at 0.2 percent? So. If you you had a $1.1 million home, you would add an extra couple hundred bucks um, to your annual taxation on your housing value. If you were $1.5 million, it would be $1,000. If you're lucky enough to be in a $2 million home, and now we're talking about very few, a small, small percentage of households in the country, now we're talking about $3,500 extra a year. And if we were to do that from coast to coast, we would collect about an extra $5 billion, and we could use that $5 billion to do important things. Maybe we reduce income taxes for renters or other low and middle uh, earning individuals who are struggling with housing affordability. Maybe we would put it into the medical care that our aging population so desperately needs and it's frustrated doesn't exist. Maybe we would address, you know, the lack of schools and, and talk in Surrey of having to put portables on top of portables now on, you know, on school properties. So you know, those are the things that we could use that five billion dollars to help address problems. And okay. uh, I think right now it's it's a um, it's a measure that is likely to happen inevitably is the aging population is really putting pressure on our government budgets, and it happens to be the case that the aging population disproportionately has the housing wealth because. They've been in the housing market for many decades and yeah. have benefited when home prices have been rising.
0: Okay. So for those people who have been in the housing market for decades, I mean, you, you just mentioned there, in many cases, we're talking about people who are, were not rich people. They were working people. They scrimped. They saved. They worked their butts off to scrape together a down payment. And then they worked hard all their lives to pay off that mortgage. Okay, now they're sitting on a nest egg with a home that's maybe worth a million bucks or more. But in many cases, we're talking about seniors who are on fixed incomes. They might not have a thousand bucks a year or 3,500 bucks a year just lying around to pay your tax. Where, where yeah, are they supposed God to get the money?
4: For the work. You're so right. So that's what's so complicated about housing these days. So I got two points. One, your description is so accurate. I mean, this is something that Pierre Polyev does really well in his commentary. Like he, would, he talks about you know, the waitress and the bus driver who bought homes in the 1980s as regular folks. And now, actually, what they did as regular folks, and they own homes in Metro Vancouver that are over $2 million. And you're like, they're the global 1%. And so these people who are <clears throat> maybe even blue-collar workers are like, I'm not rich. But in an interesting yeah. way, in Metro Vancouver today, you could have a young lawyer making six figures, and they can barely afford to rent a two-bedroom place. So who's rich, the young lawyer with a six-figure salary or the older person who's actually on a more fixed income but has a lot of housing wealth and security? Okay, and so, okay. And let me just add one little detail. for, yeah. that, for the, Take the widow who's got a fixed income, let's say $25,000 pension, and she's in a $2 million home. Well, no problem. We're not saying now give us the extra – $3500 on your $2 million home now. You can defer until the home is sold or uh, until the home is inherited, one way or the other.
0: Okay, there's a lot of there's a lot of skepticism about whether a system that you like this that you propose would would even work in the first place. Let me play a clip here for you from uh, Dylan Kruger, city councilor in Oh, Dylan I know you're I smart. I, I know you guys, are, you guys are both both outspoken on this, and you've been kind enough to debate him on, on my show here in the past. Let me play a clip here for, of him for the listeners here. Now, this is Dylan Kruger, who's opposed to this kind of home value tax. And here's, how, here's what he says, and I'll get your thoughts.
4: Just think of the taxes that we put on housing in the last half decade, the foreign buyers tax, the speculation tax, the vacancy tax, the school tax. So we see the taxes on on, on housing going up every year, and I don't think the problem is getting better.
0: Okay, so he's saying we can't tax our way out of this. We're already taxing the heck out of real estate. We brought in lots of new taxes and doesn't seem to be working. Your thoughts?
4: Yeah, so tax policy alone will not solve the problem. I mean, we should all recognize that one of the the primary factors that have seen home prices stall in the last uh, 10 months or so is actually rising interest rates. So you know, clearly monetary policy has a role. We all know that we need to build more housing. But tax policy does have a role to play. And you think about the speculation tax in B.C. Go, go Google it right now, listeners, and you'll see that the government of B.C. brags that it's 99 percent of British Columbians or more are exempt from it. So, you know, we're creating tax policy that largely is impacting a very small part of the population, like a rounding error. What I'm proposing in British Columbia would be impacting about more of a quarter of people and in a modest way. uh, But, you know, that has a bigger uh, opportunity to do two things, nudge behavior, help, you know, grow a constituency that says we don't want home prices to continue rising. That's not as much in our interest. And that would be good for our housing system and also to collect some revenue to do the important things that I just described, whether it's invest in medical care or deeply affordable housing or reduce income taxes for renters who are struggling to pay their rent.
0: Okay, well, it always gets a lot of interest here whenever you bring up your ideas, Paul, and I'm grateful to you for coming on the show today to talk about this new report. Thank you.
4: My pleasure. Happy to come again and invite your listeners to send their angry emails to me. Can I make one more comment before you go to the commercial? <laughs> yes. A, a decade ago, we proposed the idea of $10 a day childcare at Gen Squeeze, the Coalition of Childcare Advocates, and ECEBC, and I remember that, or early educators of BC, and I remember coming on CKNW, and people thought, that's just outlandish. If you flash forward to today, people agree we need $10 a day childcare. I'm kind of putting it out like I actually think in the years ahead we're going to be reflecting on this. Like, yeah, it is it is an important change to make. So I'm I remain hopeful, and I'll take the anger emails.
0: All right, here we go now with the Enough is Enough rallies. These are grassroots anti-crime rallies, citizens rising up about the crime and disorder, the violent repeat offenders that continually are released by the justice system. There are a series of rallies happening across the province today, including a large rally at the B.C. Legislature. Colin Middleton is my guest. He's one of the organizers of the Victoria Rally. He joins me in the studio. Colin, thank you very much for coming in today.
2: Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. It's really being down here in the belly of the beast.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in. I really appreciate it. So a big rally. What time is your rally today?
2: Uh, rally in uh, most of the rallies in the province are at noon. Uh, the rally in front of the legislature will be uh, on a slight delay about 12.05. Um, right. Surrey will be six o'clock. Um, Dawson Creek will be starting at four. And um, I'm, I'm hearing rumors that there might be something
0: cooking up in, in Fort St. John as well. Okay, there's a lot of these across the province. How did all this come together?
2: Well, I mean, we've been doing rallies in Nanaimo for several months now. Um, I think there's been probably a half a dozen in the last couple years, um, and uh, you know, as we sort of realized that this issue is not just Nanaimo. I mean, Nanaimo is particularly um, uh, getting getting hit hard with the uh, street disorder, but um, you know, it's across the province, and so we've we started uh, linking up with other um, Facebook groups and, um, grassroots organizers that are also kind of asking questions and wondering why things keep getting worse for them. And, um, you know, everybody, everybody that's kind of, you know, linked up in this way, we've been able to, um, identify that, uh, the root of the issue is not, is not, um, our, our fellow citizens. It's, it's the, um, it's the, uh, the policies and the in- induced behaviors that we're getting out of our, out of our, um, uh, political, uh, policies and and laws of the land
0: yeah right so you want to see some changes let's talk a little bit about you know what people are living with and experiencing like in Nanaimo we've talked to, you've been a guest on this show before and we've talked a lot about the, the the encampments and the disorder in Nanaimo can you describe it for for the listeners like what's going on in Nanaimo
2: well I mean down downtown Nanaimo in particular I mean every every week you know there's some there's more, more uh, glass being broken of businesses and break-ins, and and uh, earlier this week the Vault Cafe, which is like it's like the community meeting place in downtown Nanaimo. Everybody loves this this uh, cafe, um, and they and it's all walks of life. They are so hospitable, so um, uh, welcoming to to everybody, and and they keep getting broken into and their windows smashed. Yeah. And so it, and and so it just kind of exemplifies, you know, it's it's just it's there's no rhyme or reason to this. Like some of this is just destruction, yeah. and and um, you know we're we're trying to band together to to stop it now in the, in Nanaimo. I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of issues with with um, you know mental health and addictions. There's housing and affordability. There's the the criminal justice and law enforcement issues, like all of these are overlapping social crises that are, that are resulting in this public safety emergency. So, you know, my experience, you know, I, I cannot go downtown without going past, um, a, 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 a medical services building that is frequented by notorious drug dealers who are sitting outside waiting for patients of these mental health and addictions clinics to walk out of the pharmacy with their their prescriptions and trading their prescriptions of safer supply to the drug dealers so that they can get their street dope. Wow! Publicly funded. Yeah, I can't even. I can't. I don't even. I don't even take my kids. Down that street uh, in a car because it scares them. It's horrific what's going on, the human suffering that's happening on our streets. And the, and the, you know, and it, yes, we understand that these are, these, this is a complex issue. But I mean, our elected officials signed up for the job of dealing with complex issues.
0: Yeah. Let's play a clip of um, Clint Smith. I know you know Clint, and Clint has been a guest here on the show before. This is the guy in Nanaimo who had his auto repair shop broken into, went down to one of these encampments to to get back some, he said he was going to get back some stolen stuff down there, and he got shot. He was shot in the stomach, and he's had horrific injuries. He survived. Here he is talking to Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, at one of your earlier rallies in Nanaimo. He went right up to Farnworth here and gave him an earful. Let's listen.
2: None of you guys, after I got shot, made a single effort to communicate with me. Do something about it.
0: That's what we're trying to do.
2: A whole lot less lip service and a whole lot more action is required, Mike.
0: Okay, so he really put it to the Solicitor General there that day, got a lot of attention. Like, the government says they're trying to fix this, right? But do you think, and I know you you and I were talking off air, that you think there have been some changes and announcements that have been made that are going in the right direction. Yeah. But obviously not enough to, to fix the problem. What do you think needs to be done?
2: Well, uh, yeah. So, I mean, look, credit where it's due, um, you know, the the NDP and the, the governing uh, the government of B.C. is listening and they need to keep listening. They cannot look away from this because because getting to the root of the issue of 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 these um, crises have to they have to go there because there's nowhere else to go. Right. So, so as far as things like, you know, we've heard Nikki Sharma is talking about, you know, putting this up to the federal government. You know, yeah, we think they are right. The NDP, the, the government needs to pressure the, the federal government to, to get these changes, uh, made. And it needs to happen now. Like, I mean, we've, we've been, we've been, um, uh, pressuring on this for years now yeah. like we've been patient we are compassionate yeah. but we're exhausted and and the, the the you know the the commitments yes step in the right direction the hubs yes we definitely need it it's supposed to start in may so they, they made the announcement but it hasn't actually kicked off yet i mean but it's like let's go pick up the pace guys like yeah. get and, and the for example the um that report that came out, uh, the Select Committee on, on Health on the opioid crisis and all the recommendations, you know, they started that work last April, put out the report publicly in November, and they haven't actually started deal doing any of the recommendations like get on with it
0: yeah. guys yeah you've got some really interesting speakers at all these rallies around british columbia clint smith the fellow we just heard from there he'll be speaking at one of the rallies people may have heard the story about a mom in nanaimo who found found out what was it a bag of fentanyl or her child found a bag of fentanyl on the playground yeah it was and-
2: a it was a uh Dime bag with yeah. red dice on it, you know, and and we see these these little bags littered literally everywhere yeah. in Nanaimo. It's disgusting, and and the the it's and it's amongst all the other drug paraphernalia. Now our 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 uh, bylaws enforcement or our uh, parks like they're doing their best, right? But this stuff mm-hmm. just keeps coming. Yeah. Uh, you can buy these bags on Amazon. Uh, like at a thousand thousand in a pack for like 30 bucks. And like in two days, an Amazon delivery guy will show up with all these dime bags. You can put your drugs in to sell on the street. So, I mean, it's, it's out of control. And yeah, so, you... but anyway, this so sorry. You, you're, you wanted to ask me that, that, that. So, yeah, she found that her daughter found one of these bags with residue in it, like a lot of residue. She took it home. Um, didn't like, unbeknownst to the parents or the school staff or whatever, takes it out of her backpack, shows her younger brother who's two years old. They're trying to open the bag and uh-huh. her mom comes in and say, Hey, what's that? And then she sees that it's, that what, that it's what it is. It's like, no, oh, stop. Take, and she takes it away. She gets her friends, uh, her and her friends to, to take it down to, uh, um, one of those drug testing facilities. They found, um, fentanyl residues and enough in there to, to have killed both of their kids. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And this is the situation we're facing. You mentioned you're a dad. You got young kids, right? Yeah. And you were got, telling me off there, you see this stuff around your own home?
2: Yeah, I mean, when I started, like when I started finding like labels of hydromorphone and stuff around my around my property, like that's just from me going around cleaning up stuff that's being, that's being left on the sidewalks. And so, I mean, I see... like used needles are, are left underneath my fence. Sometimes like, uh, the, the burnt tinfoil and the residues are thrown over the, my fence and onto my lawn. So like, and my kids are outside, they're playing like they don't, they don't, they should not have to deal with this stuff. Like this is, this is harsh, like very severe, uh, uh, social disorder issues when you're at the point where, where, you know, the, you are having to clean up drug paraphernalia from, from fentanyl, that's that's laced potentially with trank and and uh uh what is it benzos yeah even if it's even if it's safe for supply fentanyl yeah like there's an like those residues and and the well i mean the residues themselves may not be that dangerous but the fact of the matter is is that it's all of the paraphernalia
0: okay last question for you colin um your big rally today at the bc legislature are you getting any official response from government have you got a meeting with the with the Solicitor General or anybody today, like uh, anyone from government, come out to say say hello to you. Uh,
2: I so so far no, and I mean you know like I I don't I don't really expect them to at this point. Yeah. Um, you know it, it would be nice the the you know that we have had people reach out from the from the BC United Caucus, and you know look like we're trying to make this uh nonpartisan, but right. but people have to realize that these, that these issues have to be addressed. They cannot look away. That is why they are in government is to, like, that's why it's in the best interests of, of citizens to have a government in the first place. Because it's supposed, they're supposed to be better off with government than without. Okay. And, And we pay for this.
0: Colin, you guys are doing a great job, uh, in my opinion, here at a grassroots level and putting these issues in in front of the government, in front of the people and the decision makers. And uh, I, I wish you all the best today with your rally. Thank you very much for coming in today. Thank you. I heard my conversation there with Colin Middleton. He's one of the organizers of the anti-crime rally at the BC legislature today. Enough is enough is the theme of these rallies. And you could hear in his voice how upset he is and all the other people who are rising up today. This is a grassroots movement here. Wake up the government on the problems that we're seeing on our streets, the violent repeat offenders being released over and over again back into the community. Let's check in with Dwayne Dilworth now with the group Citizens Take Action in Dawson Creek. Hey, Dwayne. Hello. Well, Dwayne, thank you for coming on. Tell me what's happening in Dawson Creek today. You guys got a rally there too, right? Yes, we're
5: joining the province-wide rallies. Uh, So we'll be starting off with a barbecue, uh, get a lot of the community is coming out to show support that enough is enough what what is your message to government today uh message to government is uh let's get acting on the problems instead of enabling the problems to go deeper
0: and deeper yeah what is the situation there you and i have talked before about about your group citizens take action what what kind of action are you guys taking there
5: we've just taken a stance that uh Enough is enough Uh, when children can't go to the park because they're scared, they're finding fentanyl. Uh, For example, the young girl in Nanaimo that just found a bag of fentanyl. And uh, So when police can't serve and protect, when judges can't use their judgment, when you have to sleep with one eye open, when paramedics have to wear body armor, just enough is enough, and we need some change.
0: Okay, Dwayne, I know you have Doug Scott there with you today. He's another one of your organizers. Doug, can you hear me okay? You betcha, Mike. Doug, what are you hoping to accomplish with all these rallies across BC today?
1: Well, we just need to raise awareness. More and more people need to uh, stand up and say enough is enough. Um, That's the theme of our rally today, and and everyone's just going to have to join hands and uh, push this government to make a change they're very slow to recognize that they've uh, you know they uh, they're a problem so we need to we need to join hands and, and be strong together
0: what kind of changes do you think are required
1: well basically I think we just need to have some consequences most families have have taught their children that from day one that there's consequences to actions, and these criminals and these thieves and these uh, the, these bad people just need to uh, be taught the same thing. You you can't continually let them let them go. And and we got instances in Dawson Creek where the same same persons picked up three times in a day. And and yeah. it's uh, and, and he's doing the same thing over and over again. There's just no consequences. And how how do you expect a community to stay to stay safe? It's just it's beyond words
0: really yeah this this is the thing i think people need to realize too is that when we're talking about this surge in crime a lot of times we're talking about a very we're talking about a small group of hardcore criminals who are committing these crimes over and over and over again right like is that what you're seeing in dawson creek that a lot of the mayhem is being caused by the same people repeatedly
1: That's correct. There's a small cohort of individuals that keep doing the majority of the crime, and and we'd say that there's probably 30 people that, you know, are doing 70% of it. Yeah. And there's just, that's
0: not acceptable. Yeah, Um, Dwayne, Dwayne, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Dwayne. Yeah,
5: if I can, Mike, I I believe a big part of the problem is... uh, it's great that they went with virtual judges, so it uh, can be heard 24-7, but uh, this came right from a lady at the court registries here in Dawson Creek uh, telling me she thinks one of the biggest problems is these virtual judges as these repeat offenders who are in court weekly it's always a different judge. So they do not realize they were there the following Tuesday and the Tuesday before. And uh, okay. where it used to be local judges, they would get a bit of a, oh, you're back again
0: in their head. All right. Uh, Gentlemen, I, I, I got to step in there as we're up against the clock. But I want to thank you both for your time today. Good luck with your rally. I think you are making a difference. I think your your voices are being heard. Thank you for coming on today.
5: Thank you, Mike. Yep, thank you, Mike.
0: here we go now with the history of coca-cola invented in 1886 in atlanta georgia by dr john pemberton that's the official history which you can read at the coca-cola website which i just did well let's talk about the whole story now Now, here's a question i think many people have wondered did coca-cola really have cocaine in it back in the day Let's discuss now with my guest, Bart Elmore. Bart is an historian at Ohio State University, and he's the author of the book Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Bart, thanks a lot for coming on today.
6: Mike, this is a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Okay, you bet. It's awesome to have you here. I think it's a great book you've written. You've written some uh, lots of great books we'll talk about, but let's talk about Coca-Cola here now. So let's go back to... 1886 did i get that right it was invented in atlanta georgia right
6: that's right yeah and i grew up in that town so for me this was like a kind of personal project i grew up in the home of coca cola (laughs) and you know to go right to the chase you had set it up with the cocaine yes i mean this drink would have it would have had the coca leaf uh that they imported from peru actually was the source for coca-cola and the coca leaf is a part of this coca shrub that's often grown in the Andes. And, yeah, a small amount of the alkaloid that we would find in kind of, you know, cocaine, street cocaine today would have been a part of the drink, kind of infused in the drink as a byproduct of that coca leaf being in the drink as well from the very beginning. So, uh, yeah, I'm here to tell you that is part of the story for sure.
0: Yeah. And when you go back in time, like in 1886, weren't, were people... Like, weren't people taking co- lots of people taking cocaine, like almost like extra strength Tylenols back then, wasn't it? And people were taking cocaine to like for toothaches and stuff.
6: Right. I mean, this was not a scene and the coca leaf, I should say, as well, was not seen as a dangerous thing. In fact, you could argue that John Pemberton, who had been a pharmacist in Columbus, Georgia, he had been slashed and wounded during the the, the Civil War and had all these war wounds, and he started developing an addiction, as one does, to uh, painkillers, to morphine and other things. And one of the things he was looking for, the, the historical account seems to suggest, is a, a a product that might help him kind of get off that addiction. you might say like his methadone kind of in a way. And he did. He chose coca leaves in part because it was very popular. Our president was drinking, for example, a, a wine that was infused with the coca leaf Uh, and would have given it that small amount of the alkaloid in it. And he thought it was great. And who wouldn't, right? Wine with this little (laughs) kick to it. Uh, (laughs) Even the Pope at the time uh, did as well. So you're right. This was a very popular thing that that there's a reason that's Coca-Cola. But over time, this became kind of taboo. And the company tried to distance itself from that history.
0: Right. Okay. That's really fascinating history. Now, you mentioned that at the time there was a popular Alcoholic drink here, and as I understand from your your book, Bart, like was Coca Cola
6: basically a knockoff of of that that alcoholic drink? I think that's the best way to put it. I mean, yeah. Mike, here comes the guy from the South, from Columbus, a smaller town, to Atlanta. He's dealing with this drug addiction. He's also his business burns down not once but twice in Atlanta. He basically goes bankrupt. He has no money. I mean, you know, this does not sound like the guy is going to create the best brand the world's ever known. And what do you do when you're, when you're kind of striking out? Well, you look out there and say, what's doing well? Maybe I can create some kind of knockoff that, that could capitalize on some of that market share. And that's what John Pemberton did. He saw this drink Vin Mariani that was coming out of France. And he said, wow, all right, uh, a, a Bordeaux wine with the coca leaf in it with a stimulant. Uh, people seem to love it. Let's sell it. And then the problem, of course, became in Atlanta, the alcohol, not the cocaine. Uh, Protestant (laughs) South, you know, uh, where I grew up, they were pushing for bans on alcohol in Atlanta. You can almost imagine him saying, I've got this great drink and now the laws are changing. And that's where Coca-Cola comes from. It is a non-alcoholic version of that wine that he had sold originally.
0: Okay, so they took the the alcohol out. The cocaine was okay, but they had to get rid of the alcohol.
6: Exactly. And even when Coca-Cola makes a very concerted move in the early 1900s to remove cocaine from the drink, there's no national law in the United States that's banning the sale of coca leaves or cocaine at that point in the early 1900s, like 1903, 1902, which is around the time Coca-Cola made a really concerted effort to make sure there was no trace of cocaine in the drink to just have the coca leaf flavor, but without the cocaine. And that choice was really driven a lot by Jim Crow racist uh, arguments that cocaine was contributing to black crime in the South. Of course, salacious, wow. not true. But, but in some ways, the racial mores of the time, you could argue, shaped the fact that Coca-Cola became a decoconized drink over time. Wow!
0: Speaking of Bart Elmore, Ohio State University, his book Citizen Coke, The Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism. The history of Coca-Cola. Now, this is where your book—it's really interesting—is where did Coca-Cola source their coca leaves where, from Peru? You said, right?
6: That's right. And you know, I went to Peru to track down the story because it—it's it, a story that Coke does not like to acknowledge, which I think is part of the—the the thing that I—I wanted to highlight is that Coke is a product of all of these natural ingredients from around the world, some of which have this kind of uh, taboo history that Coke doesn't like to acknowledge, and yet. You know, the documents are very clear in the National Archives here in the United States that Coke continued to import coca leaves throughout the 20th century into the 21st century and was using that uh, coca leaf as a flavoring component of the drink. It's part of secret ingredient number five, (laughs) if you're keeping track of all the ingredients in the secret formula. And the idea is that they decoconize the coca leaf, uh, they take out the cocaine, that cocaine is sold often to for medicinal uses in the United States. Some of it under federal regulations has to be destroyed. Um, but the flavoring extract remained in the drink. And it was one of the things you could say that made Coca-Cola unique. And yet, because cocaine and coca leaves became kind of synom- synonymous, oh. um, they really pushed to try and make sure that there was not a lot of conversation about this trade over time. Right. Okay. okay. Now tell me
0: about how Coca-Cola at one point were are trying to figure out, wait a sec, how can we grow, how can we grow this, do some homegrown here, coca leaves instead of importing it from Peru? And they started growing it in Hawaii, right? Yeah.
6: Mike, it's always great to talk to people who really do their homework. You've dug into the details here. So yes, uh, this, this really blew my mind too. In the 1960s, uh, Coca-Cola Uh, began a a secret operation to grow coca leaves, you named it, in the island of Kauai on U.S. soil with the federal approval uh, coming from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, later the Drug Enforcement Agency. And it was a secret, totally confidential operation that the federal government approved, which I think shows you in this book the power of Coca-Cola when it comes to the government. And uh, they would have continued to grow most of their coca leaves in Hawaii, but for a fungus that was native to Hawaii that wiped out the entire crop, and ultimately Coke was forced to go back to their Peruvian suppliers. But uh, yeah, little-known history, uh, detailed and declassified documents of the National Archive that's in the book. If you're interested, it's 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 worth a look. Uh, for me, it was one of the more kind of eye-popping moments in the in the research.
0: Oh yeah, for sure! Amazing historical research there, for sure. What about the uh, today's Coca-Cola? Do they, do they still use coca leaves or no?
6: Well, I'm very careful um, to to talk about this from the perspective of of where I stopped researching it, and and when I was researching it back in 2012, 2013. Um, the the uh, the record seemed to be clear that the relationship that Coke had established in the 20th century continued into the 21st century. The company that was importing coca for Coca-Cola was originally called the Maywood Company. Uh, that company then became Steppen Company, and you can still see that that uh, that trade was going on. Um, but yeah, as of 2022, maybe something radical has changed. My guess is no. Um, but Coca-Cola, you know, really finds this to be a touchy topic. It's one they don't acknowledge. And one I should say for Peruvian coca farmers that really causes a lot of consternation. I mean, here's a product that really made a global brand. And that was clearly, the historical record is clear, was part of the formula throughout those years. And yet there's kind of this attempt to suggest that 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 was never part of the history at all, even though it's in the name itself. So, it's something that I think is important to point out, especially for the Cochieros that made made this brand so important in a way.
0: Right. And back when cocaine was basically a, an ingredient here in the early days of of Coca-Cola, like would people when you drank a Coke back then, would you get like a cocaine buzz off of it?
6: There's a I certainly had a desire at some time to find a bottle in Emory University or, or one of the archives I was in that would actually contain this so I could do a taste test. Um yes. But, you know, the the reporting that I've seen, you know, from people that were documenting this back in the day that perhaps after several drinks, you, you know, maybe it's a slight numbing of the tongue. But I think the point here is to point out that there's a very big difference between like, you know, a, 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 a line of purified cocaine that people might think of today versus the coca leaf, which is, you know, we're talking about a very mild and very small quantity in these yeah. leaves. We're not talking about. A major thing. And in fact, if you go to Peru, as I did, you can still consume coca leaf tea there. And I have done that. And it's a very mild experience. In fact, I would say if you get an espresso at Starbucks, it's going to be a much more intense experience than if you're having this yeah. coca leaf, which is still consumed in Peru today. So, um, and lo- one last thing on that Coke yeah. tried to prevent in the 60s local. Peruvians from consuming and chewing this coca leaf even though that oh. was an indigenous practice that goes back to the Inca and they were unsuccessful but it shows the links that which they went to to try and control the trade in some ways of the coca leaf internationally which helped them uh, make sure that this coca leaf would be cheap if there weren't a lot of buyers around the world well guess what you're the only buyer in town you can set the price and that's kind of how it worked for coke it's the biggest taste to
0: all right, yeah, Coke is it, and Coke is the subject of my guest Bart Elmore's book, Citizen Coke, the Making of Coca-Cola Capitalism. Bart is an environmental historian. At Ohio State University, Bar, congratulations! All your success with the Coca-Cola book—I know it's really been popular for you. Let's talk about your uh, your newest book, right? Is Country Capitalism: How Corporations from the American South Remade Our Economy and the Planet? And you mentioned you're from the South, right? You're you're from the uh, Atlanta area.
6: That's right. I yeah, I think this all all these. Products, projects are kind of a product of my upbringing and <laughs> me yeah, going yeah. back to where I'm from and trying to understand it a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. And you take a look
0: at some of these major corporations. Wow, we talked already talked about Coca-Cola. Then you got Walmart, FedEx, Delta Airlines, Bank of America. These are the big corporations you focus on in this new book. Tell me a little bit about that.
6: Yeah, Mike. You know, when I was in when I went off to undergrad, I went to New Hampshire, and you know that was a kind of moment of reckoning for me. I actually spent some good time up in Canada, up in Montreal, and 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 kind of had this wonderful four years. But during that time, I was able to kind of look back at where I was from, the American South, with new eyes and fresh eyes. And one of the things that really struck me was was the ways in which the South was envisioned by people that weren't necessarily from where I was from. And And, and one of the things that I noted was this idea that it was kind of an economic backwater, you know, It sometimes yeah. I always felt like I was kind of like coming out of, uh, oh brother, where art thou? Or something like that. <laughs> People's images of cotton and, and tobacco and these types of things. And of course, as a historian, I knew those things were very important to the story, but I had grown up in Atlanta, you know, I was surrounded. I went to school right next to Hartsfield International Airport, the busiest airport in the world where Delta airline, the largest airline in the world was landing, uh, rumbling the school buildings as we tried to uh, to to go to class, uh, Jet Fuel for whatever reason reminds me of of high school, um, and you know Coca Cola passing by that headquarters, CNN this world leader in news. Yeah. I mean that in nineteen ninety six the Olympics come. I thought we were the coolest thing. You know the best thing since sliced bread. But I also, you know, recognize also the 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 dark history of the of where I was from the Jim Crow South. I'd studied this. You know I was really I was really troubled by all of that. But I felt like there was a kind of disconnect that, that there was this image of the South uh, that that didn't necessarily capture all this economic boom and logistics, I would say, revolution that was coming out of the American South. So this book, Country Capitalism, was really an attempt to try and reckon with that, um, not to expunge that history of Jim Crow or all the, the – in fact, to, to note that these businesses emerged in a cultural context that was so retrograde and yet – Some of the largest corporations in the world, Walmart being the largest corporation in the world, emerged out of Bentonville, Arkansas. And some of the questions uh, centered around this of why, you know, what was it about this place and these ingredients of the South that allowed these companies to grow so big? So it was a fun journey. And I got to meet these, you know, the heads of Bank of America, talk to folks in FedEx and interview folks and, um, and think a little bit, not just about how they grew, but also about their environmental footprint. Um, over time. So it was a long journey, but uh, but well worth it.
0: Okay. Well, congratulations with, with all, on all your success with, with the book, Bart. It's been fascinating to discuss the history of Coca-Cola with you uh, today. And I look forward to your future endeavors. And thank you for spending some time with us here today. I appreciate it.
6: Thanks, Mike. This has been a real joy. Thanks so much.